Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Father John Gavin, who's recently written uh, Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer, Wisdom from the Early Church with Catholic University Press. Uh, Father Gavin is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts. Father Gavin and I discuss the uh, Lord's Prayer a little bit and the patristic interpretation of those uh, of that prayer. Um, and I learned a lot from fa uh, my conversation with Father Gavin. Um, he talks a lot about the mystery and the strangeness, um, actually is the word that, that he uses within the podcast, the strangeness uh, which he encounters in the Lord's Prayer uh, as he studied it in depth with uh, the likes of Origen and Augustine and other uh, church fathers and patristic thinkers. And so uh, I hope that you enjoy this podcast and uh, we'll learn a little bit more about uh, the ways in which uh, this prayer has been used in church history um, and, and how a, a prayer like this that is so familiar to most Christians um, can become new in different ways um, and also continue to have a, a usefulness and a power, even though it's one that is quite familiar. So thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Um, I hope that you will like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, uh, connect, follow us on Twitter, and, and let us know what you think about this conversation. Today on The History of Christian Theology, uh, we have Father John Gavin, who recently uh, published a work with uh, Catholic University Press called Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer, Wisdom from the Early Church. Um, and Father Gavin is also a professor at uh, Holy Cross University um, in, Worc in Worcester, Massachusetts. Did I pronounce that right? Worcester? Yes, it, it's known as a College of the Holy Cross, actually. Oh, College so, of the Holy that's Cross. A, that's our official name, yeah. Okay, my bad. I'm sorry. No, no problem. Very good. Um, well, uh, so I've uh, father, uh, got in touch with Father Gavin because I uh, really enjoyed this work, and I think it uh, helpfully blends kind of the uh, the 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 more um, uh, spiritual aspects of reading from the Church Fathers and learning how to pray with the Church Fathers. Uh, which you know, uh, if if any of our retrieval work is doing what it should, hopefully it's turning us to prayer. Um, so um, so it was really. Uh, um, a blessing to be able to get this book and, and get in touch with Father Gavin. So thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me, Sean. Uh, well, the first question uh, is, um, I'm going to kind of jump into the middle of the work, um, and because mm -hmm. I think it will uh, sort of show a little bit uh, what kind of things that a reader might find if they came to the book. Uh, and because uh, most people probably are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, but it's called the mysteries of the Lord's Prayer. That is, you know, ways in which one uh, might find deeper truths and deeper meanings uh, at, in, in learning about the Lord's Prayer with the Church Fathers. So I asked him about the organizing principle of his book is uh, an aporia. Um, so uh, maybe Father uh, Gavin could give us a little bit, uh, you, Father Gavin, could give us a uh, definition of aporia and then apply it to the sort of puzzling word that we find nestled within the Lord's Prayer, epiusius, uh, and, and how that, uh, how aporia helps us to come to terms with this word that we may not know precisely uh, what it means, um, or at least mm -hmm. there's some po different possibilities. Um, so if you, if you wouldn't mind starting there, thanks so much. Sure. Well, I, as you said, I use this idea of uh, the aporia as a organizing principle for the book. And if I were to define the word, I, I would say, yes, it's, it's a 
difficult passage, right? I mean, Poros is a, is a ford, a passage. And so this aporia would be a difficult thing to ford, to get across, or a difficulty in general. So I, I also see them as kind of puzzles in the text. They can be linguistic, they can be contextual. But what I found interesting for these as organizing, as an organizing principle, is that on the one hand, uh, these problems, these difficulties that the scriptural texts present are ones that contemporary exegetes still struggle with, right? I mean, we'll find these in commentaries. And the fathers themselves recognized them and uh, also applied themselves to them. But on the other hand, they also serve for the fathers as kind of flashing lights, stopping point, that they are, in fact, there by, uh, they're given place there by God, really, that they're meant to make us stop, ponder, contemplate what is there. And what's exciting about them as well, and what the fathers discover is that not only do they serve as kind of a divine highlighting of the of certain portions of the text, but they also have multiple meanings, right? Uh, it's a difficult passage. It makes us pause, but it's also, it, it generates thought, mm. right? Uh, it is fruitful, right? I mean, this is uh, even for Newman, like a, you know, genuine uh, aspect of doctrine, right? They, uh, it produces ideas. It continues to uh, draw one in to contemplation. And so that's what these also do for the fathers. They have multiple meanings, but they continue to bear fruit even now. Mm-hmm. So I, I saw them, uh, even though they're difficult passages, uh, difficult things to forward, uh, they unite both modern and ancient exegesis, but then take it deeper in the way that uh, the fathers do as uh, a place for contemplation. Mm, and yeah, you brought up a great example of that in here. This 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 word, strange word that uh, that still we don't we're not quite clear on what it means. Epiusios. I mean, what is this? Uh, it's applied to the word for bread, artos, and there are a variety of meanings put forward by both modern scholars and and the fathers. Uh, so we can look at it and say, uh, you know, is this kind of combined with the word to come. So is it coming to or for the coming age? So this is an eschatological reading of it, you know, bread for the coming age, something that will be given to us in the at the end times. Uh, is it simply a prayer of uh, petition, you know, for our daily sustenance, right? Uh, the bread to come for today or for tomorrow. Uh, it could be based on usia in the sense of livelihood, uh, that which we depend on. So again, a petition to God for that. And then there is the probably most famous uh, spiritual interpretation that the fathers would give to this that a lot most modern scholars wouldn't hold to, but the idea of this super substantial bread. Uh, something that unites with our substance that surpasses our essence and unites us with the divine essence. Of course, this can lead to, obviously, Eucharistic interpretations 
of the petition. Uh, what's interesting for the fathers is as they grapple with this, they'll take all of them. Yeah. Right. Uh, which, which is which is one of the fruits of an aporia, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's not limited. Like this is it. This is the answer. But you will find Origen goes through all of these, or Jerome will go through all. So we'll find both these material interpretations, praying for and depending on God for the basic necessities. But then we'll find also the pairing with the eschatological reading or uh, this reading of unifying with the divine substance. That's what's wonderful about these aporia. You can take you in all different directions. It opens it up and it creates this bridge with even contemporary exegesis. So that's that's why I found it an exciting way to look at the prayer with the fathers. Yeah. Well, and... uh... You know, you're talking about this link between modern thinkers and uh, ancient thinkers uh, just reminded me uh, when I got into patristic research, I realized like how much origin had poured over some of the questions uh, that are still, mm. you know, puzzling modern scholars. And sure. I remember Robert Wilkin giving a talk uh, here. Uh, so I'm in St. Louis at Concordia Seminary um, about the struggle to figure out how to sort of. Uh, think holistically about the entirety of Christian interpretive traditions, um, because oftentimes the moderns wanted to get rid of ancient interpretations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then some of us who are more prone to considering the ancient interpretations didn't necessarily want to, uh, you know, didn't yeah. want to go with the um, sort of uh, how do I want to say it? Like often modern interpreters just want one answer. Like what is the mm-hmm. one thing that this means? Um, right. And so it, it seems to me that what you're trying to do and what you do somewhat in the work is, is try to bring both of those together to say like, well, there's things that we can learn uh, from, from both. Mm-hmm. Is that, is no, that absolutely. fair? Yeah. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. I think as, as you see in the book, uh, I let the fathers state the problem, the difficult mm-hmm. passage. And then I do look at some modern approaches to it to show, look, uh, this is not a new, you know, a new problem, and yeah. we're still grappling with it. And then look at how the fathers grapple with this. And sometimes, yeah, you'll see that, in fact, some of the solutions the fathers come up with uh, coincide with exactly what modern scholars are suggesting in various works. But... Again, they, I, what I find special about the fathers is they see this as a doorway, right, yeah. to, to a spiritual reading. They take it to the next step, which some modern scholars obviously will do, but others will kind of limit themselves. So I think taking it uh, to the next step just shows this next level of fruitfulness to to the readings of the text. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one and one other thing that this uh, sort of uh, – led me to question was exactly how the fathers understand scriptures. And I think you've already sort of touched on this is, as they see these aporias, these conundrums, these puzzles as, uh, as a springboard uh, into more interpretations. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing that I like to tell, uh, so I teach uh, Latin and Greek uh, mostly. And whenever mm-hmm. we get to where we have to translate something, you know, students are very concerned about getting the one right translation and I mm-hmm, always want to mm-hmm. say, 
well, you know, here's the thing. Uh, there are wrong translations, um, mm -hmm. but there are also many right ones. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And, and it's hard for us to understand because, you know, we think sometimes we want to think more like mathematics or something where, you know, we want to get to the two plus two equals four. And that's the only solution. Uh, mm -hmm. But with when we're doing when we're dealing with texts, when we're dealing with interpretation and translation, you can get it wrong, um, but you can also get it right in many ways. And I no, absolutely, yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I mean, it's interesting. I taught Greek for some years at the Pontifical uh, Biblical Institute in Rome, and uh, you're absolutely right. You you start reading it. I remember working with Paul with them and looking at Romans and. I would sometimes finish the class and I'm saying, I'm not sure exactly what he's saying here anymore because I've got all these things coming into my head just by looking at the Greek alone. So yeah, that, that yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And so that might help us understand what the uh, fathers see when they see scripture is not mm -hmm. this sort of uh, modern uh, search or quest for the one single right answer for what Paul mm -hmm. meant. And that's part of what your your book tries to do is show us uh, how the fathers lead us into these many possible answers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's part of its richness. Um, it's not just the one, it's the many. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely true. Very good. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah. So uh, to go back to the sort of the beginning of your work, uh, it's uh, it's all about the Lord's Prayer. Um, can you give us a little bit of the historical context about with maybe, you know, one or two of these books or or just in general, how uh, who is the Lord's Prayer for and who these people who are writing about the Lord's Prayer, um, these church fathers, what uh, who are they writing for and how did they understand the place of the Lord's Prayer uh, in the life of the believer? Sure, sure. No, I, I may. I, I would just maybe preface that with just you know just something about the the place of the prayer in the in the scriptures themselves, right? It's, oh, uh, first, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sure. And then, oh no, and then I'll just yeah. yeah I mean, just you know, the fathers were uh, aware of many of these things. Of course, I mean, we of course have a, you know scholars today will say there's an original Aramaic form underneath there, right? Uh, and there are attempts to reconstruct that, of course. That opens up interpretive problems itself because I mean, what do you, all we got is the Greek. What do you do? Do you just, you know, you can come up with some pretty educated uh, reconstructions, but that, you know, that can't be the basis of your interpretation, perhaps. But, right. um, and then of course, we have two versions of the prayer, mm -hmm. right? Uh, which I found among the fathers, Origen is the one who really kind of brings that out the most, though. I mean, of course, we have the version in Matthew, we have the version in Luke. There are significant differences there. Uh, Origin's solution to that is it would, Jesus just gave them at two different occasions to do two different audiences. One in Luke when the uh, disciples ask him, and the other one in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Modern scholars wouldn't shy necessarily from that, not that in the way Origin does, but they would say, yeah, we, we've got two different audiences here in the sense of a Gentile audience and a Jewish Christian audience, perhaps. And so there are adjustments made there where uh, we have to see, for instance, debts explained as sin by Luke, uh, for instance, in his version. Um, but uh, I guess if I were to say what was it for, uh, I mean, the history of how it becomes something, an isolated text is an interesting one, because of course, if we look at the scriptures, Jesus doesn't say, uh, 
this is a prayer you should pray or, or uh-huh. here, carve this off and pray this. It's like, pray like this. Uh-huh. Uh, so in some ways it's kind of like, this is a template for you in many ways. And yet it becomes, and for obvious reasons, I think, coming from you know, Jesus' own words, uh, a prayer unto itself. But we can find it entering into the life of the Christian community early on in a, in a variety of ways. I mean, first of all, we see how it becomes part of uh, daily prayer for Christians. I mean, we see this in the Didache, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to be prayed by Christians daily. So as, an, as, as a prayer itself, uh, we see it in the context of baptism and the preparation of the catechumens. Mm-hmm. Uh, some churches reserved it for only after one was baptized. Mm-hmm. But then you have some fathers like Augustine yeah. or Peter Chrysologus who allow them to preach it in advance. Right. Uh, and it's very moving, too, because uh, you know, it, it you know, you, they can pray it because they can begin to call God Father in anticipation because they may not live to the moment of their baptism. They may, mm. you know, uh, yeah, but sure. their intention to get there uh, means that even now, I mean, you can imagine the consolation that uh, a catechumen has hearing that, that even now, okay, you can begin to call God Father as you prepare uh, to enter the sacred waters, right? Uh, so that's wonderful, uh, and we see that early on. Uh, liturgy, uh, becoming part of the liturgy. I mean, the earliest reference that we have for certain of it appearing in the liturgy is with Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century. Mm. Though, uh, many scholars would see in the scriptural versions themselves uh, versions prepared for, for communal prayer. Uh, and liturgy. So it may be, you know, even though we have that first real reference in Cyril of Jerusalem. So there is, there's that element. And then, in fact, we do see it being used as a model for prayer, right? Uh, I mean, origins on prayer especially uh, looks at it in that way, how we are, what we are to ask for, what kind of petitionary prayer uh, what kind of attitude should we have in prayer in this relationship to God? God is Father, right? Uh, it therefore not only is a prayer itself, but should be the the kind of model for every other form of prayer, individually or communally, that we would have. So uh, I think the fathers, as a result, see the prayer in all of these contexts. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and when they write on it and they explain it, uh, of course, you know, in some of the works of the fathers, it's within a wor- larger work on prayer, say, especially mm-hmm. Origin, right, uh, Cyprian, and so on. Uh, but uh, other times, it's it's a dedicated work just to the uh, the Lord's Prayer, so Maxus the Confessor, for instance. But I think it's always seen within that larger context or those various contexts that it has entered into the the Christian community and the life of the community. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, uh, like you say, whether or not it's given beforehand or after or during the liturgy. And I had Mm. never thought about the precise question of, you know, why is it that we 
excerpt it from the New Testament mm. as a standalone thing, or at least who was the first to do such? Who was the first? Like, and as you mm. say, the Didache has a has a uh, a version of it as well that shows a more of a not not strictly speaking liturgical, but more communal yeah. use. Um, and and that's uh, yeah, that's really interesting and helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it uh, it, and you don't you know, when you look at the scripture texts themselves, it's like. Well, by the context, does would it have a life like this as a separate thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and so one of the uh, yeah one of the question like the reason I was asking that question was you know bringing out uh, the um, the use of the Lord's Prayer as as like for as for Augustine as a way of preparation uh, for becoming a Christian, and he, he would also teach uh, the Apostles' Creed, as if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And so he would like these would be various things that one would come to learn uh, as one prepared to be a Christian, right? So he, mm-hmm. he'd give some kind of a of a sermon to say these are the things a, a you know a tradere a traditio, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to offer over uh, to the uh, the newcomers in the faith. Um, and one of the interesting things about the Our Father is that it's a we, uh, and so Our Father who art in heaven. But then there's also the the sort of I of I believe. Although I guess there are some versions of it that have it as we as well mm-hmm. uh, er, early on. But um, you know, could you speak a little bit about this communal aspect of the prayer um, versus sort of the individual? Like in one respect, you might see the saying the Apostles' Creed as a little bit more individualistic. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, mm-hmm. although, of course, it is done corporately, uh, mm-hmm. usually. Uh, but then the sort of the we of the Our Father. So any, anyway, uh, speak sort of to that uh, communal element versus sort of the individual, uh, individualized element. Sure, sure. No, and that's a really interesting question to bring those two together or, or insight. I think, yes, of course, with the creeds, uh, you're right, we do have the, the I credo, uh, but also with the, if we look at the Nicene Creed, uh, the Pistioamen, right, it's it's a statement of the Council Fathers, but, but it does become both communal and personal. I, I, what's interesting, I think, if uh, to ground that, uh, is to see how they are similar in this sense. On the one hand, uh, they both are what we could call compendia of Christian teaching. I mean, that's what mm. Cyprian calls it, mm. right? Uh, it is a it. The Our Father is a summary of the the best of Christian teaching of Christian doctrine, as would be uh, the creed. Uh-huh. And so they they are both similar in that way. It's it's it it unifies Christian belief, and then also we see how they enter into the liturgical life of the church. Right? I mean, the the communal prayer of the church. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, yes, I mean we 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 see certainly how the Our Father enters into the liturgy in the in the fourth century, uh, but so will the creed uh, later in the fifth. So. Uh, these become part of the liturgical life of the church. And that sense, they become communal as a united profession of faith, of kind of the, the summary of the core beliefs that Christians hold uh, that unify them. Uh, but it unites them in prayer. I mean, both uh, become a communal uh, bridges for contemplation and reflection, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, every time they pronounce it. So it unites them in these core beliefs of what they believe, but at the same time, 
uh, unites them in this communal reflection, that tradition. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, though, yeah, it's it's they're personal. Uh, I, what I what I always uh, when I'm, I just did a class on creeds with my uh, students, I, we are all undergraduates here, so I was uh -huh. teaching them, okay. and it's uh, and I point out, as you know, in in the Greek, of course, this uh, believe in is ace plus the accusative, and in Latin, in plus the accusative. And if you really want to get into it, you could say it's into, right? I believe uh -huh. into something. I go into right. this, uh, this that sense there of motion. Mm -hmm. And so when I pray uh, the creed, I'm going into this tradition that has been handed on to me and becoming part, I'm going into this community. I think the same experience comes from the Our Father, and of course it, it it comes from that word that, uh, interesting enough, it was only in Matthew's version, but our, right? Uh -huh. uh, and But the community, you know, even when I say it individually, I'm going into the community. Yeah. Uh, we're praying this together because they are the, the Lord's words, mm -hmm. uh, this expression of our faith. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's striking those, uh, the, how we can bring the two of them together in that way. That's a great insight. Yeah. Well, and there, you know, in later uh, sort of more medieval and or even early uh, Reformation, uh, you you know, it seems that um, admittance to Baptist or admittance to the Eucharist uh, would often include a rec like understanding of the Nicene Creed, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and the mm -hmm. Ten Commandments uh, mm -hmm, would mm -hmm. be another pillar there, which I'm less familiar with, uh, or you know, maybe I just don't know this. Uh, but I see less of an emphasis on the Ten Commandments. Um, I mean, not uh, Augustine mm. does teach on the Decalogue, but not mm. in the same way that he does about the Lord's Prayer and mm. the Apostles' Creed. Those are the more foundational kind of uh, catechetical tools, uh, more True. so than the Ten Commandments, at least in my recollection. Do you know of, of any like use of the Ten Commandments in that way? That's interesting. Uh, I mean, certainly they come up, but I don't. In some ways, you see the Beatitudes more yeah. than some, in many cases than the than the Ten Commandments, or certain linking with the uh, other texts. But yeah, I, I don't, I can't think off the top of my head of them necessarily being used in that way. Uh, again, I have to go back and look at yeah, kind of, yeah. Kind just as we were talking, it struck me that that was another kind of pillar of instruction later on mm -hmm. in Christian life. Sure. Sure. Um, that's yeah. Um, well, one thing. Okay, so I'm gonna sort of shift gears here, um, mm -hmm. and I've I've made Father Gavin aware of uh, this question. So at the podcast, uh, one of the things that uh, I want to start. Uh, linking in is this question uh, that's sort of off topic, but maybe it'll generate some interesting reflection. So what is uh, what is one idea or truth that you once thought false or maybe once thought true, uh, but now think is false or vice versa? So what's one thing you've uh, changed your mind on? And it could be of great mm. significance uh, or it could be totally insignificant. Um, I Yeah, I've had uh, both kinds of answers, but uh, mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah, that's a, that, that. That is a good question. I, I, uh, I mean, I, I would, I would preface by just saying a general thing. I, I mean, yeah. reading and these texts, praying with these texts, studying these texts, it, the the prayer became strange to me again. Mm. Uh, I, I, I would have to say that general thing because, I, I mean, let's face it, uh, it becomes rote. We use it oh. so much and. 
by looking at the way the fathers looked at it in the way they did with the, the aporia and other things, it, it's something I'm like, this is, there's a lot of strange things in here. I mean, this, this prayer suddenly just explodes and opens up. And so, for instance, uh, you know, the, the question of bread and the symbolism of bread, uh, I suppose, I, I often thought the primary thing that the fathers would be looking at would be kind of a Eucharistic link there. But there's so much more what they look at in there. Uh, the bread as the simplicity of life, right? I mean, the bread symbolizes kind of the basic necessity of life, you know, food. And that, you know, the temptation of the desert is to go beyond that, to make rocks, false things into what sustain us. And so the bread means so much more than it, it's, it's, this, it's asking God for what we need and not going beyond that. The bread becomes uh, also this link to so much, and it's true. They, they look at all the Old Testament texts. I mean, we always have this link to the manna, but again, this trust in God, uh, this dependence on God in reception. Uh, so they open up that image so much more. Uh, the forgiving of debts. Again, I'm going beyond. As you said one idea. Oh, I right. can't. I can't stop right. at one right. idea. Yeah. I mean, the, the debt idea. Uh, you know, there's been a lot done on that in, uh, especially in the the image in you know in the uh, Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures and uh, what it means in terms of this relationship with God and the, and this later interpretation of sin. But but uh, I loved what exploded things for me. Where I say explode because it makes yeah. it strange again, was origin has this beautiful reflection of how indebted we are. Mm. Uh, indebted to, obviously, God uh, for our very existence. But then he goes on, we're, we're, we're indebted to the angels uh, for what they do for us. We're indebted to the family. We're indebted to, uh, when we see, in fact, our entire existence is one giant debt, uh, that we cannot possibly pay off. Uh, yeah. And it, it, what I found was suddenly he opened up this feeling of gratitude in me, mm -hmm. this attitude of gratitude that uh, I hadn't really thought of before in terms of this idea of debts. I mean, it's it's more than just uh, a metaphor for, for sin. I've taken something, uh, and, but it's it also places us in this uh, the sense of being grateful uh, to God uh, and to so many other gifts from God. Uh, it, it changed the way I saw that petition, for instance. So those are, those are a couple of things. But overall, the prayer becomes strange again. Uh, it, it, it becomes a real, real, it opens up contemplation in ways that, uh, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of before. Been oh, that's a, that's yeah. a great reflection. I, I, as, as you were talking, I was thinking, I think that might be my tag when I put it on uh, social media later, the strangeness <laughs> of the Lord's prayer with John Gavin. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's, yeah, it's strange. Okay. Yeah. In a good sense, in a good sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One other thing that you were saying, and you said earlier, you used the, this uh, notion of trust uh, just now, and I was thinking about that when I teach the the Piste Woman East, uh, as you were saying, I say that 
you know, uh, that basically uh, the we say I believe or we believe in, uh, but <laughs> you could also say we trust in, um, yeah, and that's yeah. the, you know, and that movement towards, and I, you know, for me that's helpful when I teach this to students uh, because. Many students think that when you uh, say the Nicene Creed or you say the Lord's Prayer, it's a sort of lining up of your beliefs. Um, mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. saying, like, let me just, you know, go down the checklist. Uh, these mm -hmm. are the things that I'm supposed to believe. These are the things that I say. Uh, but, yeah, it seems to me that definitely that idea of movement uh, is is an idea of trust. Uh, mm -hmm. I entrust myself I'm uh, to the mm -hmm. this God. Which God? The God who made these things. The God who became mm -hmm. a virgin. This and so this is the person. This is the you know uh, th this is the other person on the side that I'm putting myself into, putting my whole life into. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you know that that gives it a different character uh, than than maybe the way that I first understood it, which was I just have to believe the right things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're, you're going into the deep. That's what I, yeah. I mean. You're you're diving into the depths, and yeah, it's it's not just a catalog of stuff. <laughs> that you're you're putting out there and like you're you know in your local lodge or something like that it's it's right. uh and really i mean i think the the way that that really comes home is if we pray and reflect on it regularly i mean i like to go to articles of the creed and and pray with them often my own meditation uh or parts of the lord's prayer uh or even parts of the liturgy, you know, that, that it, it opens up only when we begin to pray and, and let the spirit lead us into the depths. Yeah. That made me think about like, and you've kind of explored uh, just a second ago with this strangeness. Um, but, but I, I asked, you know, how does this study dovetail with your own inner uh, or spiritual life? Um, which it sounds like in many fascinating ways, you know, one thing, the way that you were describing it, um, it seems like, uh, uh, going through the church fathers almost gives a newness. You called it strangeness. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. we could say a newness, uh, mm -hmm. and and in a way that uh, you know, like I'm I'm in my mid thirties. Uh, I've been a Christian most of my life. Like it could get to be quote unquote boring to some people um, if uh, it, you know if you just think that all we're doing is repeating the same words over and over again for all of our lives. But you know, maybe you could speak to how that strangeness sort of creates a, a you know, a continual drive or, or um, a, and and sort of enjoyment in uh, your own spiritual life, and and how this project has encouraged that. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I when I look at you know scholarship, especially with the fathers, I, I like uh, von Balthasar's notion of doing theology on the knees, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it really is, I, I mean, yes, you can, like you can with the scriptures, you could take the fathers apart like a, like a corpse and, you know, <laughs> dissect it linguistically and make all the, and what you got to do is sort of to make the connections to the, the culture and the philosophies and so on. Yeah. But uh, at some point you've got to step back and see what they're really doing. And, and as you know, uh, the fathers are always writing uh, I mean, there's a rigor to their thought, but at the same time, uh, they're always pastoral contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the fruit of their own prayer. And I guess for me, uh, I, I first really became, I mean, this goes back when I first started looking at this, but uh, it came to me in praying uh, the office even back when I was 
early on as a Jesuit, as a novice. The, uh, the portions of the commentary on the Lord's Prayer from Cyprian and also Augustine's letter to Proba appear in the Office of Readings. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first, you know, I'm reading these and I was like, wow, I hadn't thought of the prayer this way. And then I found myself taking these new approaches and insights and just uh, kind of talking about them in prayer with, with God, right? I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I'm like, wow, this is, I hadn't thought of this in this way or how this is applied to my spiritual life. And then uh, later, I, I did my doctorate dissertation on Maximus, the confessor, as you know, he wrote a commentary. Now, his commentary on the Our Father is, uh, it's unlike the others. I mean, it's, it's I don't know what to call it, yeah, mystical in nature. Uh, you know, it's not an easy commentary, but suddenly you're, you're like, wow. And, of course, he draws some things from Gregor of Nyssa, so you, I went back to him and started looking at his writings on it. And, uh Again, what I suddenly saw was uh, the way that really the only way they could have written these is that they prayed over it uh, and were addressing kind of also pastoral concerns there. So uh, for me now, when I go back to the prayer and pray on it regularly myself, uh, their insights are there, but also I find myself asking the Spirit to take me into. The, the directions that they maybe signposted, uh-huh. but uh, how is it speaking to me now? Uh, what is uh, what is the spirit awakening me to in this prayer at this time? Uh, all of these things. I mean, just you know, earlier I was talking about bread and mm-hmm. uh, or the debts or the sense of being indebted, uh, the sense of gratitude. Uh, these are things that. Yeah, I, I, it inspires me to to enter into a conversation on the knees with God. Yeah. So yeah, it, it has affected me and changed me that way. Yeah, that's a yeah, it's a great great insight and a great line from von Balthasar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in chapter four, you discuss the you discuss the phrase imitatio dei uh, mm-hmm. when you're going over hallowed be thy name um, and. You know, one of the things when I'm doing this podcast, I try not to make it too much of a, just a recapitulation of what's in the book because uh, mm-hmm. I want people to read the book. I want people to see the work. But I did find this phrase, uh, you know, it struck me because I thought it was going to be imago dei, which is what mm-hmm. we normally hear. Uh, but maybe you could uh, speak uh, about the imitatio dei and why that's uh, helpful to consider as opposed to just saying imago dei which is you know important of course uh but and that's it it tends to be like people are way more familiar with that phrase um and and not the not the uh imitatio so maybe speak a little to that and how that came out uh on this uh hallowed be thy name section true true no i think uh the imago dei yeah i I speak about that in there and i think uh as you say it's 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 a central image for for the fathers uh, but uh, what's interesting, and, and this is you know, many people when they hear image, divine image, uh, unfortunately they don't look fully in the context of the Father sometimes and see it as kind of this static thing, right? I'm like, I'm just stamped and <laughs> there I am. Uh, but of course, as you know, uh, this image is dynamic and right. it's often put in relation to 
the likeness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there is this potential, this potency that's being drawn forth by divine grace and this movement and ever movement into the likeness. And so, yes, I, I what I saw here, though, is this mimesis, this imitation mm-hmm. of God is also a theme very much present in the fathers. Uh and maybe in one of the most striking forms, for instance, in Maximus the Confessor, where he talks about uh, God and humanity being paradigms of one another, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that, in fact, humanity has been created for this imitation of God and God coming to be with us. And so uh, this imitation theme, uh, I think we see especially in the fathers with this idea of the virtues being uh, reflections of divine qualities, right? Like mercy, for instance, right? Especially is one that we see present there. That to grow in the virtues is to imitate God, to become more like God. And so again, there's this dynamic sense of uh, the image, but I also like the imitation of God is also that theme there. And I think really to describe kind of the activity, uh, especially the growth in virtue, imitation of God. And so when we're looking at hallowed be thy name, um, what I, uh, in that section that you were pointing out there, yeah, yeah, how how do we, render holy that which is already holy. I mean, that's that's the problem there. It's like, you know, how? I mean, God already is holy. I mean, or maybe, right. is it saying God isn't? I mean, uh, but one of the responses to that is precisely this, that uh, really what's being called for is this imitation of God. When we grow uh, in the virtues, and Jesus is the exegete of the virtues for us, the divine qualities, uh, God is being glorified, right? Uh, people see, and we have this thing, right? I mean, see this presence of God in the Christian uh, who is living that life of imitation. Now, obviously, we need grace to do that. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean they're, they're not going to fall into this idea like you just kind of work at it and it's done. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, one of the ways that we hallow God's name is therefore this imitation of God uh, through schesis, but also through obviously grace, growth in that virtue. Yeah. It's a wonderful yeah, theme. It is. It's, and it's really important. Yeah. Like, like I said, I, I just hear people talk or throw around this image of God, which is, is not to be ignored. You know, Nyssa and others were, you know, used it even in the context of slavery um, mm-hmm. as we do today. So it's, you know, that neither is that foreign to the fathers, but they don't ever want us to stop there as if that's, mm-hmm. like you say, uh, you, you know, static. And and like one thing I like to teach uh, my students as well is is that you can't look at the ancient world that nothing is st- and cease stasis. Um, everything <laughs> is moving. You're <laughs> you're moving in one direction or the other. For Augustine, yeah. you're either moving towards God or away from God. But there is no let's wait and see. <laughs> uh, there is no yeah. agnosticism. Uh, like oh maybe this maybe that. I'll just wait and be an objective observer. No, you're moving one way or you're moving another. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and that's you know uh yeah <laughs> which is it's kind of hard being a, a modern reader and especially a modern reader so influenced by scientific method where we want to be a neutral observer well let me observe for a little bit and decide um and that's mm -hmm. that's really not an, a way that even augustine barely even has a category for this like it's like no you're moving one way or another yeah where is your love especially directed yeah. right i mean uh you know we, we could go into the theme of love here, especially, yeah. right? I mean, that's that drive to uh, to be with the beloved. Yeah. Right. Well, um, so we're coming up on an hour here. So I'll maybe ask you uh, a, a a just one more question. Uh, you, you canvassed so many of uh, church fathers in this work. Was there any that you would recommend uh, to someone who, like, you know, of course, they should read your book as a great uh, examination of the whole topic and give you, you, you know, you have so many nuggets uh, from so many church fathers. In the back, you have little biographies of each. And, you know, it's it's a pretty long list. I didn't count them 10 or 15 easily, I'd guess. Um, and but is there one work, one book uh, that you would recommend for someone who wanted to, to start their way reading uh, one of the church fathers? And, and maybe why? Why is that the one that you would uh, direct people towards? That's a that's a tough question. That's like asking a parent which is your favorite kid. I don't. I mean, no. I mean, it's like uh, because yeah. I mean, they're all wonderful, and uh, and one of the things I had hoped in this book, though, I think scholars benefit from it. Uh, I think at the same time, I was hoping you know a wider audience can also benefit from it and really go sure. to the works in the end. I want them to go past the book and and actually get to the fathers. I mean, it, it, I'm gonna. I mean, in answering that question, I'm going to, it's, this is a bit of a cop-out, but I'm just going to say maybe what's the best one in a, under several categories. How's that? Can oh, I do okay. that? I'll, I mean, I don't know. I would say, I mean, if, if I would say like some of the most accessible, I would certainly go to Augustine maybe first for okay. a lot of people. Augustine and Peter Chrysologus. Okay. Uh, a lot of people don't think of Peter Chrysologus, but like they're short homilies. Like you could, you know, it's like not these long, mm -hmm. and they're so wonderful to read and delightful and full of insights and striking uh, ways of looking at the prayer. So maybe I would say like Augustine and Peter Chrysologus in that regard. Most comprehensive, say, origin on prayer, kind of putting it in this kind of larger context. And then these mystical readings of Maximus the Confessor. And then Gregio Nyssa, mystical practical. I mean, you know, it's kind of, uh, I think uh, if I put it in that regard. But I suppose if I was to tell someone to start with something, I would say start maybe with, Peter Chrysologus and Augustine, perhaps. Okay. And Augustine has a number of works where he looks at it. Oh, very yeah, right, right, yeah. Lots of homilies as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very good. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for the time that you've taken uh, to be with me uh, and talk about uh, the Church Fathers. And uh, I've learned a lot from uh, from your book and uh, and from from our uh, from our chat. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, next week, I will have Dr. Ben Heigerken on, and we will discuss his book, Salvation Through Temptation. Uh, and uh, it was a great fun to be able to reconnect with an old friend of mine. So be looking out for that in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening, and have a good week.